Take your Bible and turn to Isaiah chapters 31 and 32. While I While you're turning there, I would remind you that Isaiah wrote this book, but ultimately the Lord wrote this book. Uh, And because the Lord wrote this book, we can know that it was written for us today. Now, it was written for everybody in between here and then. uh, Because God is so infinitely wise, we can marvel at the beauty of His Word. I'm going to be preaching chapters 31 and 32. I'm only going to read 31, and we'll look at 32 as we get to those passages. Please give ear to the word of God. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they're many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet... He's wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man, not God, and their horses are flesh, not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him, from whom all people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword not of man shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert, and the standard in panic declares the Lord whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak, not just in the reading of your word, but now in its proclamation. And we ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. For Christ's sake, amen. What good is it to be a Christian? And for those of you that have been in the church a long time, that's probably not a question that you ask that frequently. What good is it to be a Christian? If you're a new convert, that's probably a thing that you probably think about in some fashion, or at least you used to. That's how you became a convert in the first place. If you're a a searcher, a seeker, a questioner, maybe that's something you think about regularly. What good is it to be a Christian? If you're in Sunday school, I don't know if you caught it when Dr. Pitts was talking, but he actually addressed this exact point of what good is it to be a Christian? Well, there's many benefits to being a Christian. It it deals with eternity. Uh, Christ saves us for all eternity. We have forgiveness of sins and things like that. That's wonderful. But Christianity is not just confined to eternity. 
But in fact, actually, we could go so far as to say it addresses every day of our life. For the Bible addresses every day of our life. It addresses every hour of our life. It addresses every event of our life. It addresses every single bit of the now and also the later. In fact, actually, and this is what Dr. Pitts was talking about, the doctrine of vocation, it really addresses the idea of being a Christian in every circumstance, whether that's being a Christian as a banker or a baker or a pastor or a person who runs the home. All of those things are the arenas where our Christianity is worked out. It's why it's so important and why historically the church has been so busy about teaching people how to think in a Christian way in general. I I pastor. This is one kind of tiny little pocket of the church. I pastor and I have a very limited amount of influence as I pastor. I I talk to you. I talk to 100, 150 people a week. I, I have a limited number. But you will take that out into the construction world and into the medical world and you'll take it out into uh, the world of education and you'll take it out into your neighbors and your neighborhood. You'll, You'll take the word of God everywhere. I'll go like five places in our county this week. You'll go like 500. Why it's so important that the church instruct how we think about Christianity and the world in which we live. And this becomes increasingly important, as though certainly this is, I I don't think, true for the entirety of the world, but at least for the United States, it seems like every week the world gets weirder. If you watch the news, which you probably shouldn't, every week it seems to get weirder. The one that I laughed at this week that was absolutely amazing, the climate activists and got tired of trying to glue their hand to paintings because it wasn't working, because they all have you know, acrylic covering on them so it can't hurt the painting. So I don't know if you saw this in Germany this week, they cemented their hand to the middle of the road. And they did such a good job cementing their hand to the middle of the road, they actually had to chisel the middle of the road up. The problem is it's very difficult to chisel the middle of the road up without chiseling part of your hand off. And so you have these wonderful videos of these climate activists just screaming incoherently as the chisels are maybe a little too close to their fingers and the workers being like, I'm trying my best. And we're like, this is the world that we live in right now. The other story that made me laugh this week is in an effort to uh, improve an entire kind of city's mental health. Uh, I think it was a Dutch artist, I think, uh, decided that as uh, their art installation piece would put two gigantic rubber duckies in Hong Kong Harbor in an effort to improve the entire city's mental health. So that as you travel anywhere that you can see in the harbor, these two 60-foot-tall rubber duckies would remind you of the hilarity of life and improve your mental health. And like, what is going on in the world? This is the best we have to offer? An art installation of 59-foot-tall rubber duckies in Hong Kong Harbor. This is what we have as a world to offer. It's, it's ridiculous, honestly, if you think about it. If you really just stop and think about the world, it's the most ridiculous place ever. That's why it's so important that we actually go to the Scriptures to figure out how to think about this crazy place that we live in. The world in which... We exist, 
Chapters 31 and 32, uh, I think, are extremely helpful in this task because that's, in essence, the, the task that Isaiah is trying to do for the people of Israel. They're confronted with a time in, in Israel's history where you would have said very similar things like, this is crazy. Now, maybe not the crazy, silly way I just described our world, but in the crazy, scary way. If you remember from previous weeks, if I can get my map kind of again backwards in my head for you, you have Israel right here, you have water all on this side, you have one gigantic scary enemy up here, Assyria, that's getting ready to invade, and they've tried to make uh, an alliance with Egypt down here in an effort to fight this. So they have, in essence, formed an alliance with the worst people group on the planet, their greatest enemies, to try to protect themselves against their most scary enemy. This would be the equivalent of the Jews forming an alliance with the Nazis to protect them from the Russians. Very complicated and very messy. Everybody would have been confused by this alliance between Israel and Egypt, and everyone that would be looking around, the common man looking around at the world would have been going like, Are you, what is happening? What is going on? My entire childhood, everything I've been taught about the Lord has been framed from the perspective of Egypt are the bad guys that God destroyed, and now they're our only hope? It's not Obi-Wan, it's Egypt. This is the most bizarre thing that's ever happened. I'm so confused. What's going on? Chapters 31 and 32 give us a brief, or at least the way I'm hopefully going to present it today, a brief overview of kind of some of the ways that we can think about these crazy circumstances, the world in which we live. Well, verses one through five of chapter 31 start with a very kind of clear and sobering portrait of what's actually happening with Egypt. You would have looked at this and thought, oh, this is a political play by our pseudo-king. This is a, a, a last-ditch kind of effort to keep the nation alive, to keep Assyria from, uh, from invading. Well, maybe this is a political blunder. I'm not sure. And to reduce the conversation to politics. The interesting thing of what Isaiah does, though, is as we have a conversation about politics, is he doesn't talk politics. He talks religion in the world of politics. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Woe to those who rely on horses. Woe to those who trust in chariots because there are many. Remember, chariots represent the strongest military technology that existed at this time in history. Uh, chariots would have been the equivalent of like our drone strikes or things like that, atomic weapons. Uh, you did not lose if you had chariots. Um, woe to those who trust in chariots. Woe to those who trust in these horsemen. Woe to those that are looking for these political solutions because the answer is not political. The answer is spiritual. Woe to those who are looking to all of these political solutions, but look at the end of verse one. Do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Huge mistake the Jews are making. They are looking at their national crisis, they're looking at their political landscape, and they're thinking it's only a political problem. You know what? Political problems get solved with political solutions. This is the way we do things. Cultural problems get cultural solutions. Emotional problems get emotional solutions. Medical problems get medical solutions. Interestingly, Isaiah's like, eh, wrong answer. It's not, a, it's not a political problem, ultimately. It's a spiritual problem. 
Because what's happening for the people of God at this point in time is they're looking at their political circumstances and they're hoping in their political solutions instead of their God. Instead of their God. And interestingly, verse 2 then begins an explanation of who this God is. He's the God who is wise. He knows what he's doing. He's powerful. He brings disaster when he wishes. He's so incredibly wise. He doesn't have to go, um, I'm sorry I said that. Take that back. Rewind it. Reverse it. He doesn't have to call back his words and be like, oh, some of us where we do it. The moment those words come out of our mouth, we're like, no, I shouldn't have said that. Can we just rewind time like 15 seconds so I didn't say that? He never has to do that. He's so wise. In fact, he's so powerful and just that uh, he's going to bring judgment and justice against the house of evildoers, even against the helpers of those who work iniquity. And remember, people, that your political problems are filled with Egypt, and Egypt is filled with men. And men, when they stand against God, do not fare very well. You would think that would be an easy reminder as this is from a nation or about a nation that has already been wiped off the planet once by this very God. Remember the whole plagues and thing? Then having the sea kind of swallow them up and wash them away. The greatest nation on planet Earth basically is brought to their knees and their army is washed away in the sea in just a matter of weeks. They're gone. Our God is the mighty and powerful God. He, he, he does not, he's not bothered by armies. He's not bothered by chariots or horses. He's not bothered by drones or tanks. He's not bothered by munitions or villains. He's not bothered at all. In fact, actually, when he stretches out his hand, he does whatever he wishes. There is no enemy, verse 3, O enemy, that can stand against him when he wishes to reach out and do his thing. He does, and nothing frustrates his plan. He's not bothered by anyone or anything. I love to think about that. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, for some of you in here, I know some of you, Some of you hate plans, and this next illustration is probably not going to be as impactful for you because you don't like planning in any form or fashion, but some of you love planning, right? It's your favorite thing to do. Your plans have plans to make plans, and it makes you happy. And for those of you that fall in that category, I will not name names nor make eye contact with any of you. There are few things that challenge your world quite as much as when your plans must be altered by new information. The weather's bad, the tire was flat, the car's out of gas, the toddler's thrown up, whatever it is, plans have to change, and the world is coming to an end. Our God is so wise, nothing frustrates his plans. I love that, that actually uh, what Isaiah does to a political problem there that all of the Jews would have been confronted with is to provide a religious solution to challenge the people of God to think about the character of the God who is at work, to think about the character of the God who is using politics, to think about the character of the God who is even using the villains to accomplish his purposes. 
It's not an opportunity for fear. It's not an opportunity for anxiety. It's not an opportunity for neurosis. It's an opportunity for faith. Our God reigns. Now, as is often the case, it is very easy for me to believe that our God reigns with your problems. It's much harder for me to believe that our God reigns with my problems. Right? That's pretty much general rule of thumb. It's easy to have faith when it's your faith that's needed. It's very hard for me to have faith when it's my faith that's needed. And I think it's interesting that that's kind of, in essence, really the transition that the text makes. It's kind of laid out this principle of like, yeah, we are to interpret uh, our world, we're interpret our, our circumstances, our events, our point in time in history through the lens of God's character. Well, that is hard to do. And in fact, actually, verse 6, what does it then turn to? A call to repentance. Turn to him, people of God. Turn to him from people who have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. Turn to him away from the idols that he will cast away. Turn to him away from the nations that you're looking for, uh, for support. Turn to him from your fears of national insecurity. Turn to him away from these dangers and these worries and these bothers and these panics. Turn to him. Now, kind of put in kind of modern language, application. All of us in here in some form or fashion have those struggles that are kind of in, in front of our brains currently that dominate us. They fill our minds, they, they captivate our hearts, they kind of fill those waking moments, they, these events that kind of somehow manage to fill the kind of empty edges of our brains so that when our brain goes wandering, it wanders to these things. Now for some of us, those are medical problems. For some of us, they're emotional problems. For some of us, weirdly enough, they're political problems. Maybe we enjoy the news cycle a little too much. Uh, some of us, it's family problems. Some of us, it's work problems. Some of us, it's, it's various, sundry, different types of problems. But interestingly, the solution is no different. We either can go looking, filling our minds and our hearts for political solutions, for emotional solutions, for family solutions, for medical solutions, or in some sense, realize that maybe this call to repentance isn't just for them, but maybe it's for me. Maybe it's time that I stop letting my fears run the show, or my temper, or my anxiety, or my jealousy, or my selfishness, or my pleasures. Maybe it's time I give that up. And to come to the Lord in genuine repentance and say, in Christ's name, please forgive me. I've been looking for these earthly solutions, and I've been missing the point. I've been missing the point. Because see, that's actually, and again, I I love the transition in the text, is that it it then gives us the encouragement. Why would I want to do this? (laughs) Why, why would I want to repent? Why would I want to give up the things I've been clinging to? Why would I want to give up my adult versions of my safety blankets, all of my coping mechanisms? Why would I want to give them up? I've had this teddy bear that I've kept with me for 40-something years. Why would I want to give it up now? 
Well, because Isaiah and God ultimately begins to explain what the kingdom of Jesus looks like. And so what we had is this starting point of evaluating our circumstances. Now we're turning to evaluating what the kingdom of Christ looks like. Now, it's not all finished yet, but verses 1 through 8 of chapter 32 begin to explain a little bit of what the kingdom of Christ Jesus looks like. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. Ooh, I like that. Princes will rule in justice. I wonder who those princes would be. Ever thought about that? That's you and me, friends. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, or like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. To think that this is what kind of those defining attributes of the kingdom of Christ is that it's a place of safety and shelter. I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you've You've been out for a walk somewhere. Maybe you weren't paying attention to the weather that day. You forgot to check your weather report, your phone, or whatever. And you get one of those southern terminology, the gully washer, right? The huge thunderstorm that lets out. And you're like, did a hurricane suddenly set out? Where, where did this come from? And you have to find some tiny little alcove, like right under the edge of a building, to just stand as it's pouring rain. That little bit of reprieve, that little bit of safety, that little bit of blessing. I love that that's presented. This is what the kingdom of Christ is like, that place where you may hide, find safety, and rest. Then, verse 3, the eyes of those who see will not be closed. The ears of those who hear will give attention. Their their minds, their hearts will be equipped to actually do it. God's people will be able to do the thing that they need to do. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. This is so comforting for parents in the room that have children that maybe sometimes are marked by a little bit of hastiness to know that in the kingdom of Christ, as Christ works, understanding will happen. They're going to get it. It'll take place. They'll, They'll understand. The fool will no more be called noble, but instead, the scoundrel will be taken as properly not honorable anymore. The right things will be elevated. Instead of looking around in our current culture where fools are elevated to the highest positions of power in the land, where scoundrels are elected day in and day out, where the ungodly rule and reign are media, where the ungodly rule and reign so many of the activities of our lives in the kingdom of Christ, it will be changed. Righteousness will reign because our God will reign, because King Jesus will reign, because he is a just king. This is who he is and what he does. This is a wonderful kind of thought process if you, again, think about the logical flow of the text. How do I think about the world around me? I evaluate it by the character of God instead of through my simple political solutions. That probably means I need to repent because I know I've been messing up with that. And if I don't have the courage to repent, be reminded that King Jesus is a perfect and noble king. He's wonderful gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, the rest of the chapter is, interestingly, those same three points slightly altered and jumbled in order. 
Verses 1 through 8 lay out for us the nature of this great kingdom that Christ rules and reigns in, and then immediately turns again to a call to repentance. Where verses um, <clears throat> sorry, uh, 6 through 9 in the previous chapter were to use these events to call us to repentance. Now in verses 9 through 14, they challenge us to listen, to get our fingers out of our ears, to get the earwax out of our ears, and to listen to God's Word so that we may hear it and may be encouraged. Right, verse 9, rise up, you women who are at ease, hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women, for the great... Their situation, the circumstances are coming. This is going to happen very, very shortly. Assyria is going to invade. The northern kingdom is going to disappear. There's a call to repentance. Listen to the word of God. Pay attention. Do not ignore what God is saying. Grieve in the way you're supposed to grieve. Hear the Word of God. And why do we repent? Again, verse 15 through uh, 17, 15 through 18, there you get to see this change. We, we repent, we grieve, we mourn, we have sorrow. Why? Until the Spirit is poured out from on high. And then even creation is altered. I love this. Verse 15, the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. This is the undoing of the curse in Genesis chapter 3. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest, and justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. In part now, in part, but in full later. In part now, but in full later. And why is this possible? Well, verses 19 and 20, just briefly. Because our God is so mighty, nothing stands in His way from judgment or from blessing, because victory is sure, for He is the mighty God. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. Uh, Those who just labor in the kingdom of God. For God will bless and will be victorious. Okay, well, so how do we put this into practice? How do we put this into practice? I will say this is one of those kind of weird things that is easy to talk about, but sometimes is very difficult to explain in the ether. It's usually kind of the thing that's the easiest to explain in the counseling room. And the reason why is because most people do not push pause on their response long enough to actually consider what it is. I'll give you an example of this. It's what makes sitcoms great. If you ever have a TV show that you like, a comedy, a a situational comedy, sitcom, what makes that comedy great 
is that whenever they do the dumb thing or the angry thing or the bad thing, there's always a two-second pause that's just long enough for the punchline to be delivered, right? The kid comes in and they drop the thing and it spills everywhere, and rather than tempers immediately flaring or tears immediately flowing or voices being immediately raised, there's a pause long enough for what? The joke, right? That's, that's where the joke is made. That's where you know it's going to be funny. Everybody pushes pause, time out on the response, long enough for the joke, and then people get angry and then tears and then whatever else. The interesting thing, most people never learn the ability to push pause on their emotions at all. And so what happens is we're kind of led around like a bull by the nose by whatever our circumstances are. Whatever we watch on television, whatever news station we watch, whatever's trending on Twitter, whatever's popular on Instagram or TikTok suddenly becomes the most important thing that's leading us around by the nose or pulling us along by our ears, forcing us to emotionally respond. And most of us never push pause long enough to say, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling it? And what does the Bible tell me about that? We never push pause long enough to do that, do we? This is always fun to watch as we enter into presidential election cycles and we get to see kind of both sides of the aisle and then all the in-betweens kind of get worked up into kind of foaming at the mouth, frothing everywhere because everybody's so, nah! and they're like, wait, wait, wait. First, push pause. What are you feeling? Are you actually anxious? Are you actually afraid? Are you, are you actually angry with people? Why, secondly, why are you feeling that? And then third, what does the Bible say about that? Because I'm pretty sure the Bible says that this ruler, no matter good or bad, is going to be instituted by God. Romans 13 says that. They're going to be horribly corrupt. The Bible pretty much says that. And at the end of the day, it's going to be a kingdom that falls to the kingdom of Christ Jesus because all kingdoms will fall before the kingdom of Christ Jesus. So why do I have to worry about any of it? Instead, vote your conscience, serve the Lord. Or dealing with your boss who's skipped over your promotion for the third time. When you know you work harder than your coworkers, it's that one time that you stood up to them and whew, that was it. We don't push pause long enough to figure out what we're feeling, what we're thinking, and then to bring it under the word of God. What does God tell us about this? How can I hope in the kingdom of Christ Jesus? How can I confess my sins and seek forgiveness in him? How can I trust in the Spirit of God. You see, that's part of what is so significant about the Reformed view of the Supper, the Lord's Supper here in just a moment, is that this Supper is not just a normal and ordinary meal. Many of us will have that in roughly about 45 minutes or an hour or so. But what's going to take place in this meal is where we sit down with our Heavenly Father in our union with Christ, empowered by the very Spirit of God Himself, and we feast upon Christ Jesus, And it's a time for us to kind of push pause, to to push the timeout button on everything in our life and to just for a moment bring our minds and our hearts in subjection intentionally to think about what am I thinking and feeling and how does the Bible speak to that? 
How do I view my concerns and my worries? How do I view my joys and my gladnesses? How do I view all that I am underneath the death of Christ Jesus? That he took my sins to the cross, paid for them there to make me new so that I may live as a new man, you may live as a new man or a new woman in the kingdom of Christ. And in doing so, remember who He is, and in some sense, remember who we are, that we are the children of the King, and it's our joy and our privilege to live like that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word, that it does teach us and tell us who we are and how we are to be. Would You please forgive us for being so preoccupied with the kingdoms of man, the kingdoms of our corporations, even the little kingdoms of our families, and not quite preoccupied enough with the kingdom of Christ. Forgive us for our sin. Would you please reorient our minds that we would think of our worries in light of your faithfulness? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.